This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Broadcast is live. So good morning, uh, good afternoon, uh, good evening, depending on where you are in the world. In the time family, welcome to another um, in class with Car. Uh, the face you don't expect to see is me. Uh, no, we see you all the time, brother Reyes. When we in office hours, so the Nubia family knows. For those of you who are watching this uh, on YouTube, yeah, you know this. This is the. Uh, this is our architect. Oh wait, when does the Matrix come out? I actually think it's already. Is it already out? Oh, I'm sure it's laid out. I don't know if they made it. exactly. I know some there have been some special screenings, but uh, I've, I've seen some folks uh, in my circle talking about it. Oh, okay, okay, it's coming so, soon. So y'all know who the architect and the key master and all they. <laughs> y'all looking at the man right there. That's all. I'm, that's I'm gonna say less. <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I'm jumping into Nubia here. I'm pulling up. And uh, for those of you who don't know that process, y'all should get with it. He's an architect. Uh, oh, here we go. All right, I'm in. Oh, wait. Is that, uh, do I see Professor Hunter in there? Okay. And of course, I'm sitting here because uh, Professor Hunter has taken a well-deserved rest. And I put the emphasis on well-deserved. Well deserved and yeah. and not resting. I know she ain't resting because she, you know, but but yes, <laughs> right. Because the thing that uh, she has conceived and built in the the course of just uh, I guess a little bit over a year has become a behemoth that we know as narrative and Nubia. And one of the uh, most beautiful things is the the vastness and the richness of the family. Um, it spans yeah. continents. It spans uh, hemispheres. We got people from all over. Yes, uh, but that allows us to bring in uh, other folks from the Nubian community with yes. expertise and excellence to join in on the conversation. That's that's the case for today, and I'm excited about the uh, the special guests we have to um, to push the conversation along with you today. Yeah, as I'm uh, very much saying, very much so. And we're this is 93 in a row, and I was reflecting on it a little bit. Um, Urea's thinking about this as we reach the end of the academic semester. I think this is the week that most of uh, most of you young folk um, under 18 around the world will have a few days to sit still between the end of your school year and the beginning of next calendar year. And most college folk are, uh, if you're in college or community college, university, any of that, you probably finished up last week um maybe some of you all are going this week i know i've still got a few more things to grading and uh the, the grades are, are going in now um and yet we don't look at that calendar we're taking our time back we're reclaiming our time as they say in the house of representatives and that uh auntie maxine waters congresswoman waters made famous for everyone we're reclaiming our time so we don't miss a beat uh, narrative is 24-7, newbie is 24-7, the communities are growing, and in this little corner of it, or on Saturdays, we have, this is 93 in a row, and uh, Professor Hunter is here with us, and we just keep expanding the circle, so uh, today, we, we have, we're in for a treat today, though, we, we have, uh, we're bringing in somebody into the conversation who's been part of the conversation since just about day one, one of the great Advocates, but, but it's a surprise though. Who, who, wait, who, who is it? 
Well, <laughs> architect, Urias, what let, we let's, uh, <laughs> let, let's bring him in. Uh, you, you've seen his face uh, probably in a myriad of different places. Um, he is a poet. He's a writer. He's a journalist. He's a TV writer, but he's a Renaissance man as well. But uh, most importantly, he's a Nubian. And he's been a friend of Narrative Anubia since the jump. Yes. Uh, so I'll, without further hesitation, bring in our brother and good friend, Mr. Michael Harriet. Hey. Hey, hey. hey. What's going on, brother? I'm good. I'm good. I've been waiting all week. Like, oh, I want to see. They said they have a surprise this week. I can't wait to see what the surprise is. <laughs> you realize, wait, wait, it, it's me. Yeah. <laughs> So what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to step back and I'm going to allow the you know the ancestors to do what they do drive this conversation. I'm going to let you two brilliant minds uh, commiserate and take this thing forward. So happy to have you, brother Harry. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, like I said, um, I, I I know this might be sacrilegious to some people, but I'm going to just go ahead and say it. I'm the world's biggest narrative Nubia fan. Um, I'm gonna just claim it. <laughs> nah, bro, you, you, you part, you know, you part of the fabric. And since before we had narrative in Nubia, you, you, you've been saying that from day one. And and when 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 Karen told us, told all of us that, and then you came in and came on. We had for our first conversation, man, last year. It was like, man, that's Michael Harriet. This is the brother who uh, knows no chill when it comes to using words <laughs> to to force us to to deal with ourselves so i was like man that feeling is mutual brother so i'm so glad to see you man i'm so glad yeah i'm so glad to be here um you know i guess i've been here on the show a couple, i think one or two times I yeah yeah a couple times. but you know i guess behind the scenes like i'm always a student and i guess the people the nubians don't know like I will call you and Karen up. Like I got a question, and um, <laughs> that's how we first met. <laughs> so I'm not. I've always been the type of person that I'm. I at, at like they say like the smartest people know how much they don't know. Oh, brother! So I'm always, uh, you know, I will call you. I will call Professor Hunter up yeah. and ask the question. It might not have anything to do with history or anything but i'd like to commiserate with people who know more than me and who know what they're talking about um same here so i'm just happy to be here happy to be in the midst happy to add my brick in any way possible you 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 bringing whole buildings brother i'm telling you man and uh yeah if if that's the you're right i I agree with you brother If, if um if knowing what we don't know makes people smart then yeah i would consider you and and me and professor hunter and you know and brother Urias, we some of the smartest people because we know what we don't know <laughs> at least we know we don't know <laughs> we're always trying to figure it out man people are um so many things man i was thinking wow oh if mike's gonna be here then there are questions i got man we can ask for i, I want to ask you if that's all right with you, yeah, a couple yeah. things, man. Yeah. yeah. I, I, um, you know, this week, well, last week we talked about Greg Tate. I don't know if you have had any cross the past with him or, or thought about him or had any. And then, of course, uh, a couple of days ago, we lost the sister, Gloria Jean Watson, whose pen name everyone knows her as Bell Hooks, of course. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about either the two of them and, of course, uh, Maladoma Some. Um, was a very important spiritual uh, ways of knowing 
African person influenced a lot of people also made transition and some other things I want to talk about. But but I, I wanted to first ask you if you uh, had any had any thoughts on bell hooks or any of the folks that we've lost in the last couple uh, last week or so. You know, I think when you talk about Greg Tate just mm-hmm. as a writer and a, before Nubia narrative, mm-hmm. I never knew what to call it. You know, we call it. I, you know, I just call it, you know, talk how we talk to each other, right? Our ways of knowing. I didn't know to call it that before then, but how we relate to each other, how we talk to each other is always a thing that I've been interested in, but I didn't know what to call it because having kind of entered a world that was filled with white people at a relatively late stage for most people, like, you didn't under you don't understand what that thing is that we do to each other that is absent when we're not in each other's present and um you know that's always been the way that i wrote and uh, some you know there are people like greg tate who all their entire career was in that space and you know, that when you see stuff, a young person like me would be like, oh, we can we can do that? Like, we can talk on the paper, like how we do to each other? And in and, and the same with, with, with Bell Hooks, right, to take, it, it, we call it feminism, um, but what it really is, is looking at people and treating people and considering people whole human beings, right? right. Right. Um, That's right. And considering people's humanity and how they differ from how we differ from each other without stripping something away, because the differences don't mean that they are they are less than um, is what bell hooks always taught and wrote about and made you understand and how she explained and expanded the conversation around women, around black women, around black people, and how those things intersected and overlapped. Uh, man, we we lost a giant, right? We lost two giants. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I hope people took this opportunity to go back and kind of refresh what we what they gave, refresh our memories of what they gave us, right? Mm-hmm. Read some more. Of, of of Tate, read some more of uh, Professor Hooks, mm-hmm. and just understand how what they wrote even back then is. I mean, when you see it now, right? Because I mean, if I'm being honest, I probably hadn't read Bell Hooks in two, three years. You know, um, yeah. yeah. And and you know, I, I if I'm being honest, Greg Tate, I read them all the time, like. You know, there's certain things. That, I think, that I you, think there's something there, brother. We're going right. to explore that. <laughs> no question. But how fresh it is every time you read it, how yeah. it is like they wrote it yesterday. Yes. And how timeless it is, uh, is something that we are reminded of. And so even though they are ancestors, yes. they're always here with us. And I think like sometimes when we talk about ancestors and the ancestors guiding us we think of it as like because just of the world we live in and the religion we've been brought up in we think of it as people peering down from the clouds 
to speak to us or watching <laughs> us or uh, unseen hand. But what it is, is all of the things and all of the works that they did here on earth also yeah. influenced you forever, right? Yeah. They shaped the, your, the world that you live in just by them being here, right? That's right. And even if it's just the wind, the wind made from a butterfly wing, yes, it, it creates the world that you live in. And that's part of what I mean when I say the ancestors speaking to me, because um, because mine speak to me. They speak to me every day every in a day. lot of ways, and I don't think it is that they are saying, "Hey, let somewhere saying, hey, let me see what Mike is doing." Right. I think <laughs> right. it is that they did their work that made the world that we live in what it is, and that reverberates within us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, yeah, that's a man. It's a well-crafted description of how, of how those forces work, right? I mean, they're way beyond our human capacity to understand. And as you say, I mean, it reminds me of the Sweet Honey and the Rock song, uh, listen more often to things than to beings. It, it's in everything, that essence, that that ashe, as the Yoruba people would say. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in this moment of transition with Omicron coming and, 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 and here and folks now thinking, well, we're going to have to pull back and, you know, people being overwhelmed and then the holiday season comes and those who are in isolation often feel isolated. But, you know, for those who are completely isolated in one way or another, you know, for, for us to always understand we're never alone. We're all part of that essence, like you say, and it's not just human. And, and people come and go, a uh, very, very dear friend and, uh, and family, the Fabara family, a mourning loss as a brother. Those of you who are in Nigeria, you probably know the name, Kirby Fubara. He was uh, one of the uh, the Nollywood stars. He made transition. He had cancer, and he didn't find out until fairly recently, and he kept it kind of quiet, like Chad Bozeman did. And in that transition, you know, um, I did not know uh, Chad Bozeman. I knew Kirby since he was a little boy, but uh, his family was in Ohio. Uh, they went between Nigeria and United States. And, but in how they both kind of face that with a sense that, yes, we, we arrive and we depart in these physical bodies, but we come out of an essence, we return to an essence, and in many ways, we never leave an essence. So when you say the ancestors, right, it's not like we're projecting our, the way we move through the world onto them. But there is no them in us in the sense that we all are part of that essence and we're surrounded. We're never alone. We're part of that fabric. And um, when you talk about bell hooks and I want to think uh, that's man. It was a it, it was something you said, among other things. But when you said that in passing, you know, you hadn't engaged with bell hooks written work in a few years, but red gray take every day. I think. It might be something there because I think I feel the same way and, and I'm um I'm being careful with this because one of the things that we find ourselves confronting is this question of of being in the world and here we are and you are one of the most I think accurate and compelling capturers of those feelings and I think it's one of the reasons why Bell Hooks was so important. Uh, Bell Hooks captured a lot of the things that we feel out of our pain, out of our trauma. Um, she was also hella funny. Uh, not as funny in print as you are, I think, because I think one of the beautiful things about your humor is, I think it, we we always run the risk as African people in the United States, of course, as we know, of centering the trauma, of living in the trauma, 
but your triumph over trauma in the space of a, of a couple of, of words, man, is that that's a gift. I think that comes from a grounding in that. I don't even want to call it optimism, a, a awareness that you know this too will pass. So it's, there's, there's a genius in it, man. <laughs> in fact, I tell I, I, I first time we maybe the, it was the first time we talked. You called about something. This is a couple years ago, but I remember that piece you read. Uh, you wrote after. Uh, when Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg came out with that foolishness and you got in that back and forth with him and them bars you laid on him were so genius, man. I had to, we had, I, I was teaching, it must, it had to have been in the fall because, yeah, of course, I had my education in Black America class and we, we paused the book we were reading and went through that line by line and it just elicited all these common feelings of, of uh, experiences are these young people that had. But I'm saying, I have to say that like bell hooks, you tap into something we feel. And I think that there there's an essence there that um that allows us to have that experience but at the same time without some grounding some anchor and you've talked about it before many times I mean, including in in this space about how you were raised and, and the community you came up in and the impact of your mother and siblings and the community and bill hooks talking about that coming out of appalachia kentucky you know, but she was born about an hour and a half from where I was born in Nashville. She was in, I think, Hopkinsville, Kentucky. And she was raised there in a very tight-knit black community, uh, very close. Uh, her father worked for the post office. Um, you know, she's often, uh, I think, in some ways mischaracterized. But when you live your life out loud like she did and write everything down, it seemed like you're going to have some things that don't. It's not like writing is math. You know this better than I do. So it's not all going to end up in equation. But some of the criticisms that have been labeled of her being, you know, too closely aligned with the white feminists. And I certainly won't defend Gloria Steinem. She and the CIA can go to hell. But that's a whole nother story for another day. But in that process, she never threw black men away or black community away. Her thing was always community. And, and I'm just saying that as a, as a kind of prelude to what happens when you're confronted with being a smart kid. And you've written about that. You've talked about that. You've lived that out loud in many ways. And I think that helps certainly a lot of my students, for example, um, who have been that student, who may not have been surrounded in that blackness the way you were, and then have to confront that other space as they've matured into adulthood. But certainly Bell Hooks had to do it because she was at Stanford. I mean, she ends up going to Stanford and um, she's surrounded by that whiteness. And I think from if not before, certainly from that moment to the end of her life, there's this dance that she's doing as this brilliant black girl, then woman, who is bearing public witness and honesty and truth, but then people curate her for their uses. And I'm not sure that you can ride that horse in a way I'm not sure, and, and that's why even in developing those, those African states categories, we, we, we thought about the social structure, who are we to other people, and the governance structure, who are we to ourselves? I think Bell Hooks was very much grounded in the governance structure, but because she was grounded in her truth, in her speaking her truth and constant debate and conversation and surrounding with love, that social structure curated not just her, but her generation in a way that could could I don't know that she could manage that, and I don't even know that if that was if that was even her goal. And, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. In and I want to mention one other thing in the context of there was another brother who made transition this week. Um, Maladoma Patrice Somay, he uh, ironically 
out of the same general region of Africa, Burkina Faso, he was Dagara. Um, as a brother, we talk about a lot, Hampate Ba, who was his elder, was his elder, but was also, uh, Hampate Ba was pure, um, or Fula. And Somay was Dagara, but they were both from the same region and they were both culture keepers. Somay was sent off to the missionary, the Jesuit boarding school when he was a child. I think he was four or five years old. His father took him. And he said, man, they had me for like 15 years and they messed me up. So when he came back to the village, the elders were like, man, they, they took you and disemboweled you. you. We can't send you through the rites of passage, but we're going to take you back and send you through the rites of passage. And he spent the rest of his life talking about spirituality, talking about the our destiny, talking about community. Uh, he, his wife. Uh, they wrote a number of books. Most people know his book of water and the spirit, but they also maybe the book ritual, uh, the book, the healing wisdom of Africa. But, I, but, I, but I'm raising him because he made transition this week, right around, around the same time as Bell Hooks. But his his grounding in the governance structure and ways of knowing had to be cultivated and cultivated after a close encounter with this social structure that was determined to break him and shape him to their purposes. And so. In fact, we know of him because the, the elders and the community he was from said, we give you permission, having gone through the rites of passage, going through to share with the world these truths that we have. And Bell Hooks never left her community. And you, we could talk about her, her, her intellectual journey, her academic journey. I mean, you know, she ends up getting a PhD. Uh, she wrote her dissertation on Toni Morrison. I think she was at University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, master's from University of Wisconsin. And then she goes into the academy. She spent many years at Oberlin in Ohio teaching. She's on faculty there. She ended up uh, at the City University of New York at the, at the Graduate Center, Cooney, actually, City University of New York. And then she left. I think, man, that's got to be about maybe 15 years ago or, or more. She left and came back home. She actually took a job at Berea, uh, at Berea College in Kentucky, which was actually where Carter G. Woodson went to school. Of course, Carter G. Woodson's birthday is tomorrow, the 19th. And we'll talk more about Woodson in a minute. But I'm, I'm going through that journey to say that she eventually comes home. And that's where she was. They started the Bell Hooks Institute at, at, at Berea. She was on faculty at Berea. Uh, Berea is a school where you don't pay tuition. I mean, these, most of those young people come from Kentucky, Tennessee, Appalachia South, don't have much money. They come there. If you get in and get accepted and, and enrolled, you don't pay. And so it's it's very much committed. And it was an interracial school, even when Woodson went there, coming out of West Virginia. And, and so I started to say that she was also like, like um, Somme, grounded in community. And at the same time, so much of what she had to say, I get the feeling that not only did she write in a way that was accessible to all of us, but she wrote, I think, in a way that could be interpreted by anybody for anything they needed and often in the social structure it could be used in a way that could cause if we listen to it dissension in the governance structure and whereas a greg tate also danced that dance coming out of ohio living in dc going to howard then going to new york around those black communities but then in that social structure being curated for being smart and then you know but he was constantly in conversation again rooted and grounded in community I wonder, though, what would you say is the difference between a Bell Hooks and a Greg Tate in the sense that because I'm the same way as you. I came to I came to Bell Hooks really as 
a graduate student. I didn't read her in undergrad. Uh, when I got after I finished my law degree, I went to black studies. I'm reading her now because she in the late 80s, early 90s kind of burst on the scene, even though she had been writing before that. But I didn't find myself continuing to read bell hooks like that. The more I continued to think and read and listen and talk, even though I would return to her from time to time. For me, the value of her was her candor, was her honesty, was her willingness to 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 approach pop culture and move forward. And I, but I would make a distinction between, in some ways, Bell Hooks and Greg Tate and Bell Hooks and you, even in terms of that. I don't know how to say this because I think she she ended up a self-described Buddhist Christian. She was there for a long time. But I would make a distinction between those styles of engagement. And I'm not quite sure how I would label it or even if I need to label it. But I'm wondering if, if, if you have any thoughts on why, why do you say, for example, I'm constantly reading Tate Hooks. I haven't really engaged like that consistently, even up until now. Do you do you do you wonder why? OK, so let's start off with a story. Right. So. Okay. I remember I was writing you and you'll notice I was uh, writing about um, I can't remember who it was. Oh, the lynchings at the curve in in uh, in Memphis. Yes, sir. yes, sir. And yes, sir. The editor, I said, I said something like, you know, um, Moss, who, you know, owned people's grocery. You know, he was respected in the community because he was a go relating this to bell hooks he worked at the post office no question <laughs> that's right that's and right the editor was like the white editor was like well I, I don't know what that means what what does that mean like what does that have to do with anything and i was like oh you don't understand that if you in the black social structure uh or the governing structure post people who work at the post office it is a it's a symbol of stability and like those kinds of people hold a, a, a special place, not because they work for the post office or work for the government, but they got what we call a good government job. That's right. So, you know, uh, insurance agent. Uh, right. And I, I remember having the same question again when some, I wrote about somebody, um, uh, Amelia Boynton um, replaced the, her husband replaced the town's notary republic. And it was like, what did, like, I was like, oh, you don't know that when you in the governing structure and the social, the difference between the governing structure and the social structure is the levels of hierarchy that we endow somebody with versus what the, That's right. the, the social structure can endow us with, right? That's right. So now how does that relate to, to Bell Hooks? Well, Bell Hooks, she wrote she, 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 you know, we, I mean, in any writer, right? You can see parts of themselves and what no they question, write. no question, no question. But you know, let's be the difference between bell hooks is like it was in the structure of the social structure, it was you know, she took that and made a career out of it and infused herself in that career. Whereas with Greg Tate, <laughs> yes, Greg Tate. He was Greg Tate. He was like, there may have been some of the social structure in Greg Tate. There may have been some of this larger world in, in Greg Tate, but, but what he was giving you is us, right? 
He wasn't, and he wasn't translating us for other people. He was talking to us in the way that we talk to each other. Again, I didn't know what to call this until I, you know, found you and Dr. Hunter on the internet. Um, but it was, he was talking to us and relating our ways of knowing. If Greg Tate said their daddy worked at the post office, he didn't explain it. He didn't feel right. the need to explain it. He got a good job at the post office. Yes. You know, and, and it, I was thinking about that yesterday and thinking like, do is there's always work at the post office. Is that a, a our phrase or is that a universal phrase? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like there are things like that, that I don't know because, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't, I, it was so late when I. No, we don't up. think about it. Yeah. yeah, you're asking the question. We don't we just assume it's us because we yeah. You, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and I think that's the difference between uh uh Bell Hooks and the Greg Tates. Um some of her stuff she became an icon because some of her we can see the blackness reflected in her writings. Agreed. And we was like, oh, this is a thing that was created for in 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 the 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 template of the social structure that we can relate to that's right and greg tate was for us it was <laughs> in Ooh. and so yeah i think you, when, when you when you see those things right and there are some people who kind of go between the two those two things right um yeah, that's true people know how to navigate them too right because you know Ultimately, ain't that what code switching is? No question. Right. Um, you no know, question. there is an academic code switching. There is, uh, I mean, there is a, a, even in everything, in science and in math, um, there is a thing that we know and understand that either has to be translated for everybody else or we just keep going and let them figure it out for themselves. Um, and that's what I think, you know, and, and there's neither makes is, is less or more valid. I don't think. Right. Mm. Because, um, you know, I gotta know where to put the commas at, at the end of the day. <laughs> right. 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 But, you know, there's sometimes I have to go and edit the editor because, oh, you don't understand the social structure you don't understand how i'm relating this to these these ways of knowing and and let me explain this to you Hmm. and so i I think someone like greg tate first of all he gives voice to us because oh he's talking like like we talk he's he's writing like and he can write right he can make you laugh and you can hear the music, what the music say. You know what he's talking about when he's describing music. That's you right. know the feeling. You know the the essence that he's imparting unto you. And and that's one of the things that I think is the difference between the two, and that there is value in both. Because I mean, to be clear, right? Like we can't survive. I mean, there's somewhere we're going to brush against the the social structure. Hmm. Mm. No matter how black you are, you got to brush up against it, right? And so to survive, you you have to figure that away now, too. 
I mean, you figured out a way to minimize that, though, brother. I don't know. Was that a choice? That was a. I mean, was that a conscious choice you made? The path you walk on now. So I don't know. Like, <laughs> okay, okay. So that's, but that's the ancestors, right? So you think about the ancestors mm, and what mm. we talked about earlier, right? Yes, sir. I what says sometimes when you choose to enter that social structure or you choose to to value white give whiteness a inherent value. Oh boy, here we it go. It is because like you kind of absorbed all of this stuff in the social structure that 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 endows you with that that idea that whiteness is somehow more valuable. And if you enter that world later, I think like I do, first of all, I don't give it any more value, right? Like I don't have it. Right. Right. Not on, but it, I don't know if that's conscious, right? Like mm. I think you can do that consciously, but I think ultimately like when you break it apart and look at the insides, you are, you are, everybody values a thing. Like, would you take, you know, $20,000 less to work? But again, it ain't, it's not just choices. It's the ancestors, it's circumstances. It's like, I get out of college and I apply to a bunch of jobs. And then, you know, one of the first jobs I just have, just happens to be at a HBCU at Benedict College in South Carolina. Oh yes, that ain't a conscious choice, right? I it ain't like I was being flooded with job offers. Ah. And see, Somme would say that's your destiny. The Europe would say that's your ori. No question, it, w- it was no accident. You didn't know, but 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 the universe knew. The Ashe knew. The, the ancestors knew. That's why you had you went to Benedict. It right. wasn't a blind stumble. Wow. Right. And so so some of those things. You you make our conscious choices, but some of them are you know circumstance. But again, we think of it as the ancestors. But here, here's the thing, right? So if you like every weekend, I was I've been thinking about this a lot lately. <laughs> Growing up, how I would spend summers at my aunt's house, mm-hmm. and she didn't have a TV. And every weekend, all my family would stay at the same house, my, my grandmother's house. Yeah. And it would be so many of us. Like, but basically what we did is just sit up and tell stories. And then on a lot of weekends, my aunt would just come and pick us up. And we knew like at least once a month, we just got to go to Bishopville, South Carolina, where literally the land on where my ancestors was enslaved and just go visit family and just sit around and tell stories. And now I'm listening to those stories thinking, Oh, why we got to sit here. But I know the stories by heart. Now <laughs> I don't heard my aunt and Jesse tell this story so many times. I know it by heart, but you absorbing all that. That is the ancestors making a thing that you don't know they're making. They don't know they're making, but they're making what I became. That's right. That's right. And that's what that's what that's what uh Hampate Ba call that's how you come to tell stories. This is I mean, not even tell story, even storytelling. You are literally becoming an apprentice to be a jegma, to be a doma, to be the blood that keeps the circulation going. And parenthetically, as you as you as you're talking, I'm listening, my I've been scribbling a few notes down and also keeping a, a, an eye on the chat. I'm very well aware that you know we are two 
men and and bell hooks as part of this conversation and it would be um I think it, it would be a different trajectory, I think, if we had a sister in here in this conversation with us at the same time. And for reasons we can talk about, I I don't find compelling the gendered language that this society uses because it comes out of, ironically, that patriarchy, that white male patriarchy. And uh, and maybe you can help us understand that. What was the brother, uh, is it Damon Young that said that black men are the white people of like anyway I, look I, I ain't got no problems with that because i understand sometimes when people talk you also see what they haven't yet read or, or learned so i think about how, how uh so many of them but anyway i'm, I'm just saying I'm, I'm well aware we two brothers having this conversation maybe we can pull somebody in. But, but i just wanted to, to, to note the fact that when you as you're describing your journey and your your apprenticeship it sounds very much like what so may talks about in terms of that rites of passage so much of what you engendered um in us what he would that you elicit from us was poured into you that craft man you learning that craft i mean i i think maybe you can help us too in terms of craft because bell hooks i think one of the reasons she was so effective is that she took that way of speaking she took that language and reduced a fraction of it to print and she did that in fact i want to mention i just mentioned in passing i think i have yeah i pulled it this is maybe this is these this is her first printing. This is her first uh writing. She was actually at Stanford. This is a journal called Hambone. It's a very, very uh difficult. And the irony is, of course, you see Jehudi, you see the Egyptian at the beginning. She didn't do a whole lot of engagement with Africa, which is I think is a weakness not only of bell hooks, but a weakness of of black people in general. Of course, we know that in, in the diaspora, and particularly you know, black public so-called public intellectuals are not um the social structure don't want to hear that that they're gonna spend all day they're gonna spend their entire intellectual project engaging in greece and europe and linking it to shakespeare going through the question of european theory and whoever's hot at the moment um at the time bell hooks was coming of age of course this is the the deconstructionists then the post structures you're talking about jacques derrida uh, Michelle Foucault and, and Bell Hooks was grounded in, in she, you know, her approach was theory. She said, I'm going to, I was searching for my voice in theory. And I think that too is the over being, I mean, Fanon would call it, I think in some ways being overdetermined from without, even though I think ironically he too was, you spend your life then fighting out of the trick bag they put you in. And Somme, of course, had a village to go to. Like Ayikwe Armando, they had a village to go to. They had a community to go to. You came out of a village, came out of a community that grounded you. She too did. But by the time she reaches maturity and then cycles into that space, that Stanford space, this journal actually was published at Stanford. The, she was an editor along with uh, Nathaniel Mackey, the poet who we talked about before. In fact, if you want to see the, the editorial board, there's Nate Mackey, Nathaniel Mackey, now the poet, we know her. There she is uh, right above the brother, another poet, Al Young. These are all undergraduates at the time. And of course, she was known She was known then to the public at the name that she was known until the day she made transition. If you go to Kentucky, for example, people who live in her little towns, like we knew her as Gloria because that was the name she used. Bell Hooks is a name we use, which almost shows you in some ways who African people are to other people 
at the same time, she picked that name because her grandmother was named Bell Hooks. And so she said, and she lowercased the B in Bell and, and the H in Hooks because she says, it's not about me, it's about the work. Ironically, in a, in, a, in, a, in a social structure that values spectacle, particularly black spectacle, that didn't diminish her stature, that enhanced it because they were curating her as a white facing public intellectual, even though she wasn't naming herself that. This is the danger, I think. But anyway, as a young person, as she is, she's one of the editors and she, her first publication then um, is actually poetry. So she's looking for that language. And I'm only mentioning it, I would show it to you all because again, this is not something that people would necessarily, she published four poems. I'm just gonna show you one of them here. This is the first one, there's some artwork there. There's the poem, No More Fire Water, right? We do not leave the land that leaves us. We watch as those who know not the soothing weight of, of the earth upon the body as hands which have not yet found a way to speak. Take the land, our men, they do not weep, nor do our women cry. It is because we believe the land will someday return. We have not left the land. In the earth we are waiting. When the rains come, we will rise. There ain't no feminist theory in that. There's no attempt to blacken Feminist theory. I think about my colleague Valethea Watkins, who writes about this all the time, who teaches about this all the time. I also think about some of the contemporaries of Bell Hooks who are never mentioned in the white social structure because they can't figure a way to split gender. In other words, they can't figure a way to elevate gender to race and class and this intersectionality, which I also think is a difficult thing conceptually when you really stop to really think about it the more we, we engage. But people like Vivian Gordon, I would encourage you all to go read the work of Vivian Gordon. People like Marimba Ani or uh, a sister who used to be known as Donna Richards or Donna Moses. I, I encourage people to, to look at her as well. Um, thinkers, in other words, who have uh, the capacity, and I could talk about some men too, but I want to talk about these women in particular just in this context, who you can't figure out a way to say, well, yes, it is race, but it's also class. It's also gender. And in gender, we've got some internal things. All right, everybody, okay, social structure, y'all go over there and have that conversation. Because see, y'all got some real problems. Because if you start pulling on the gender genealogy, what you'll find is in our ways of knowing, the challenges that we have, that's why a Somme is so important. When you see, or a Marimba Ani, or Vivian Gordon is so important. When you see us dealing with these challenges of gender, you see us dealing with them within our ways of knowing. I'm not talking about the trauma grounded ways of knowing of Africans who have gone through what uh, uh, Ngugi Watiago would call dismemberment. In other words, those of us in the West who have been here now long enough that we done co-mingled our thing and got straight up confused. And I'm not talking about a pristine romantic Africa where everything was perfect because no such society has ever existed. But I'm talking about the kind of things that to talk about some African women who are writing about the same thing. Or you want Wumi, uh, for example, in the invention of women, a notion of gender that isn't inscribed on your body so that when you start dealing with interacting with each other, you're not doing it from a, a point of departure of separateness. Well, even young Gloria Watkins is not dealing with it from a position of separateness at the beginning. But the theory, the body of theory she begins to engage in the 1970s and in the 80s when she writes her first book, I think she was 29 years old when, uh, what was it, Talking Back or was it Ain't I a Woman? Um, anyway, she's 29 when she published that. That captures the attention of this social structure and she's off like a rocket. So even as she encountered, I suspect some of some similar enough experiences as you did, right? When you were young, as and I'm gonna interrupt, that was a long footnote. I'm gonna continue that story about how you hit his narrative. 
she's not, I don't know that she was sitting on them porches. She was absorbing it the way you did. But in some ways, they not only, and I hate to use this metaphor, but I mean, it's one we're familiar with. They passed that baton to you like she had the baton passed to her. And she comes to Stanford with that baton. But very shortly thereafter, this thing grabs her, man. <laughs> and so she's still bearing witness. She's still being honest. And I think that's the thing that resonates with all of us with her work. At the same time, if you get caught up in that theory thing, you might spend the rest of your life battling on that edge. Whereas you somehow in the generation coming after Bell Hooks have figured out a way. And I think Greg Tate did this. this is why I think it resonates for you and me and, and a whole lot of people. You have figured out a way to carry forth that momentum. So I didn't want to interrupt you, man. So you so, so they would take you to the country. <laughs> you would sit there and observe those stories. No, then, no, you didn't you didn't interrupt uh at all. Um, first of all, you know, I, I could listen to you for hours. Is... But you know, I, I was just saying that to illustrate when we take it back to 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 Bell Hooks, right? She existed, she was able to have that life to go to Stanford because of that post office. Yes, that's true. Right. <laughs> that's right. So you think about, you know, the idea of whether it is embedded in her, she knows it, you know, is 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 intentional about thinking about that, is that I have to engage with the social structure to get what I want in this world. And I think what was absent in me is what if you just do what you want knowing that at the very worst, at the very least, I can exist in this governance structure. If they all reject everything I say and, and I don't have to adapt to this social structure, then mm. at the very least, like, you know, I always say, so I remember once I was sitting in the hotel room one, one day and they were talking about this guy and I can't remember his name, but he was the first black general manager of a, foot, a professional football team in, in the Canadian football league. Mm. And he was talking, they were asking him why, he only hired black coaches. Um, <laughs> you know, he was successful. He won a title. And, you know, he, he paused and he says, well, you know, I do what I want to do. And they asked him, well, well, what if you fail? And he paused and he said, well, you know, what's going to happen? I mean, they can't kick my ass. And, <laughs> but in a way that's how I think about the world, like at the very least, like what's going to happen. I grew up poor. Like that's the worst thing that can happen. Right. Right. What can you do? And when you think about that, Ooh, like man. I was happy and, and, and satisfied in those days. So the worst thing that can happen is the thing that has already happened to me. Ooh. Then you, you realize that you don't have to compromise your humanity and what you know, or you don't have to twist yourself into knots trying to place yourself into this square hole when you are around peg because you want to fit into the social structure. It, but you never wanted that though. Now see, you don't have like see, I'm not sure what I'm not sure what, and I'm not now I want I won't even single out bell hooks. You I don't know if you, you probably have read uh, Adolph Reed. You know, it's interesting. New York Times had a piece this morning on Bell Hooks, and they talked about she wasn't without her critics. 
and then they curated the criticisms including this thing on Beyonce, which I just laugh out loud every time I see people jumping on bell hooks for what she said about Beyonce, because I'm like, y'all do realize that there's a whole body of engage critical engagement, and they look at that like, that's some social media stuff. Why y'all mad at her? But anyway, there was a piece by Adolph Reed that he published in the Village Voice. This is around the same time that Greg Tate never writes called What Are the Drums Saying Booker? And his criticism of bell hooks, he didn't single her out. It wasn't a gendered criticism. He said, Bell Hooks, Cornell West, uh, Henry Louis Gates, Michael Eric Dyson, and he put Robin Kelly in there. And I'm like, man, I don't know if he should put Robin in there. This was years ago. He said, they serve the function of interpreting black people to white people. And so, and, I, and first of all, I don't think that, that Reed was entirely fair, particularly given the fact that his own father, Adolph Reed Sr., came out of HBCUs, taught at HBCUs, where he went to the University of Arkansas. And after desegregation, you know, a guy like an Adolph Reed and then his son, Teray Reed, brilliant guys. They're basically class first guys. I don't want to say they're class reductionist guys, but they teach in white spaces. He retired from the University of Pennsylvania for many years, you know, in these other white spaces. But, but his criticism was, I think, less, at least the way I read it. Well, let me not speak for him. And people could read it for themselves. In fact, I would encourage you all to read this, this article, those of you who don't know, when I talk about it's called, What Are the Drums Saying Booker? It was posted, it was written in the Village Voice. But to, to, to what you're raising, uh, Mike, thinking about the spaces for the that people whose names, black people, so-called black intellectuals, and I put that in quotes because even to call somebody a public intellectual, I think is a mislabeling in the sense that I was reading something the other day that was making the point that those who think for a living, who write for a living, who teach for a living, who we would call quote unquote intellectuals, up until the recent I'll say the last 40 or 50 years and 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 read quotes a book by uh Jacoby Russell Jacoby called the 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 last intellectuals or something He's, they really are public intellectuals in other words if you are a teacher if you are a teacher at say a university based teacher and you're teaching undergraduate students you are in dialogue with young people who are for the most part particularly if you talk about people of african descent indistinguishable from folk who are not in college at that age or older. In other words, you're already, particularly if you're talking about introductory level classes and things like that, you're basically having conversations with people, introducing them, learning from them, teaching them back and forth in a style that would be pretty much translatable anywhere. And so when we start talking about public intellectuals, up until fairly recently, that label public might have, it may have been just redundant. This is just some, in other words, you can get as much or more wisdom. Well, I mean, they'll go down that. That's a governance conversation. That's going to get into a whole nother thing about what we value, because that's what you're talking about, Mike, I think in part. But I don't want to get too far from what, what you're raising, because this is this is, this is is the question I was going to ask you, even as you're, 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 you're curating this. Reed's criticism is grounded in part, I think, on what he is imputing to them. This is why I say it may not be fair of him to do this, but at least imputing them is what is your desire? Are you trying to be in these spaces to be a translator? I mean, he basically accuses them. He, he opens the article by going to an old Tarzan movie and saying, y'all like them black people who will be with, with uh, white people in Africa. And when they say, what are those drums saying? They say, hmm, drums say that darkness comes. In other words, you are translating black people to white people. And I think he he was unfair a little bit in accusing them of doing that at the same time. I do raise the question, 
two questions. One, is that really your one of your objectives? And is that even possible? I mean, in other words, so I don't ever feel that that's your objective, like. In other yeah. words, I, like Greg Tate, I'm just gonna put this out here and then whoever get it, get it. But like August Wilson said, I'm not writing to a black audience or a white audience. I'm writing out of a black foundation to whoever will listen. <laughs> so I don't know, and, and I'm not saying, I'm not sure that Bell Hooks wasn't doing that, but I know how she's been curated, puts the label on her almost like she's speak, trying to speak to a universal audience out of black experiences. And I'm not, I don't know. I mean, it gets very confusing to me. I don't know if you can help walk us through. I, th I think, uh, so when you, uh, I mean, first of all, the idea of the public intellectual is, uh, it's a white idea to begin with, right? Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So one of the things i noticed is when I started going to public school is the things that we think of as intelligent or smart, right? So you know, I, I, I go, I, I think of people who I, like they, they put me, like they skipped me a grade and put me in these gifted classes. And I realized, oh, these people ain't smart. I'm the only black kid here because the rest of these people, mama say, you got to put my son in that class. Right. So in essence, they are curating. Yes. The intellect. And then, so we can go back to the, idea of intelligence right so what we call intelligence is a you know can be reduced to a few things how people use words how people use the language that the white language that we are given right so you know most iq tests when we talk about intelligence that's right we're talking about the understanding of language um because you think about this right it's like take steph curry right mm -hmm. he you can push him and he could be 30 feet from the basket moving left shooting with his right hand and what his brain is doing is actually calculating a parabola into uh decimal points so far down the line that they are able to go into the basket that is a form of intelligence we call it hand-eye coordination but that's not they don't call that intelligence like somebody who just sat in a class and learned to recite words that's so we have to first get rid of the notion that understand that they are curating intelligence right, right. so right. how do they curate their intelligence right that's right that's right so it is by what you retain that they put into your brain right so they you will sit in a classroom and you they will tell you words but they're not talking in the language of the governance structure that's right so from from the its inception you're translating right right so unless you know that you're translating you're going to think these kids are smarter than us damn right damn. Mm. yes sir yes sir yes, so sir. so when you like after two three years you're in third, second grade third grade and now you caught the idea or the gist of the translation but you already but they already said you're behind now <laughs> right right and the right. dude who spoke the language they were speaking in in first grade and second grade he's intelligent now that's when they start curating what we call in intelligence or the intellectuals that's right so you take 
get 12, 13, 14 years down the line, who are the intellectuals? Well, the intellectuals are the people who succeeded in translating probably from the beginning. So they have to had an inherent, either an advanced ability to translate or they existed in the world that they didn't have to translate. In other words, they existed in the social structure more so than the rest of us. Mm. And they get to, but they got this black skin. So they get to translate us to white people. Now, when you think about, you know, what, what I see myself as, I don't even see myself as translating black people to white people or speaking directly to us. So I go into, I'm 12, 13 years old and go into a white school from a black neighborhood, a black family. And I realized that I have to be intentional about understanding white people. So in a sense, I see my job as translating white people to black people, because even though we know (laughs) right, we don't know how much of, of what we know as black people, we have confused by thinking it is a thing when it's just something white people told you or made you believe. Why did you see that as your job, man? Having that developed capacity, why did you see it as part of your job to then undertake something that you had the skill to do? Were you you doing that on the behalf of us, on the community, for the community? I I can't say I was just like being that egalitarian or... or Yeah, 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 no, no, no. I mean, I don't know if it was conscious, but I'm just saying, but you said, you know, I felt like I had this ability. So I don't know if it's ability is like you take the skills that you're given, right? So they, mm-hmm. all these women, mm-hmm. all these black women are, are curating this thing, right? Yes. But what I don't have, what my skill, you got to know, again, back to the first part of the conversation we had, you know what you don't know. Well, you know what I don't know? I don't have as much experience with white people as everybody else in the world. <laughs> Almost everybody in the world has more experience with white people than me mm-hmm. right so but that lack of experience means as i'm learning i realize oh you think this thing is a thing when i can see it they taught you this thing got it got it right like we don't know how confusing english the english language is because we can speak english right but right. when you hear uh when you try to tell somebody who speaks italian or somebody who speaks Italian tries to explain to you how confusing you is, you think, oh, you know what? That's right. Like, that's a crazy thing to think mm. that that these two words rhyme, but they spell totally different. But then these two words that spell kind of the same don't rhyme. Right? So you're, you're coming out of a foundation where you have a certain cultural grounding. You got ways of knowing. You got meaning making. You got all and when you enter this social structure and begin to learn that language, learn that world, you're, de- it's, you're demystifying it. Does that at any point cause you to question the world you came from as being inferior or just different? I mean, not, no way you say, okay, okay. Not, not one second, right? Okay, I, okay. Like, 
Okay. If if anything, superior, right? And see, this is this is this this is where I was going. Clearly for August Wilson, clearly for Marimba Ani, clearly for Vivian Gordon, they too would say that. And I think Bell Hooks would say it. I think, ironically, part of the reason she withdraws from that urban, you know, East Coast and like and goes home, goes to Berea for that last decade and a half of her life, is very much part of that thing. And I don't think she ever strayed from it, but institutions that we always say institutions don't beat individuals in her journey i think for me one of the most well two things when you are coming out of that and i hate to use the word authenticity but when you come out of that grounding there is a use for you as you say you I mean you just narrated i think beautifully and i think i'm just keeping out on the chat a little bit some of the people it was resonating with them how this idea of being curated from a young age, it certainly happens to Du Bois two generations before. I mean, you see him getting curated. They pull you in. Those tests, like say the gifted classes, are they going to start curating you? And, you know, when I think of Bell Hooks, for example, and Cornell West, having seen them many times, talking and being public dialogue. And then I remember when their book came out, Breaking Bread, years ago. You know, I read that and I think, I, I wonder what is the value of that kind of inter, in, in exchange grounded in black culture in audiences that receive it as spectacle, as performance, and will compensate you accordingly, give you the award. So this is so good. It's giving me, and I'm thinking this is no different than watching black people on an athletic field and attributing their excellence to natural gifts instead of, as you say, in the case of Steph Curry, whose father, Dale Curry, worked his like hell, whose grandfather came out of HBCUs. In other words, no, this is intergenerational transmission of skill, hard work, that hand-eye coordination. You didn't come out the womb shooting three points. I mean, but but they will receive that as spectacle. They will receive that as importance. And sometimes when I listen to um, Cornell, my friend Cornell, who's in these spaces, as Duraez knows and, and Karen knows, you know, uh, or Bell Hooks for that matter, or Mike Dyson, you know what I'm saying? Y'all are y'all are hearing this and receiving this as spectacle, as performance. Whereas in our space, I think it would it would either be received differently or critiqued. And when you say, if anything, my grounding makes me feel superior, I think, you know, certainly those we've been through this dismemberment. Some of that, for me anyway, I experienced it as and experienced it as defense mechanism in some ways. I do experience it. I think this would go back to Du Bois in the 19, late 19th century, the conservation of races, when he's saying every cultural found uh, group has something to contribute to dialogue. And so you can compare and say English doesn't make any sense uh, in terms of even gender. He, she, people mix up the genders who speak other languages, particularly you start talking about African languages, Asian languages, because gender is not essential to how they construct their languages in the way that English is, that German is, that even Latin is, which speaks to the cultural grounding in terms of uh, even, I don't know, well, let me, let me pause here because I was about to jump from language to uh, culture in the sense that even the way quote unquote women and quote unquote men interact because these are gendered labels that as Oyewumi would say 
are inscribed on the body, what she calls like somocentrism. In other words, you know, you say women, you say men, you assume male, female, which then sets you up to have to have intersectionality because you have literally inscribed these gendered roles onto physical bodies. You've conflated uh, biology and the social construct, which means you have made the trick bag that you now want us to create theory to escape from instead of just walking away from the whole mess. But if you don't have a place to stand outside of that dialogue, then you don't even have tools to begin to see, as you said, wait a minute, there's a distinction to be made. And I think early on, Bell Hooks, when she says, she writes this, I, I, I was using theory as a way to find voice and to give voice, a pure desire. You see the young Bell Hooks coming with, even with her poetry, you know, grappling with these ideas. But if you don't have, a place, if you don't have a place to stand, even beyond, whether it be Appalachia, whether it be South Carolina, whether it be Tennessee and those black communities, that's a place to stand. And it's a deep way of knowing. It's deep cultural meaning making. It's deep movement and memory. It's deep governance structures. However, it is also, there are also places to stand that haven't yet been connected consciously and deliberately to this long genealogy of meaning making that precedes the trauma. So as a result, we often empty so much of this effort into the social structures we find ourselves in that are inescapable, as you say, that can figure out ways to then seep into our governance structures. So even when we think we're problem solving, we have imported into our governance structures so much of the noise out of these social structures and we can't distinguish because we haven't taken the time and whether it be because we don't have the, we haven't cultivated the institutional capacity to protect ourselves so that we can engage in these social structures without importing some of the, the, the less useful or in some ways counterproductive thinking into our governance structures. This is where I think we have a challenge. And so, you know, probably the most important for me book that Bell Hooks wrote, an important line of discourse that she pursued over her life was um, a book she wrote called Teaching to Transgress, where she's talking about, among other things, and I'm talking about her book, Black Looks, where she deals with pop culture. So many of I them, mean, she wrote over 30 books, but Teaching to Transgress for me, and I remember reading it in the 90s, and I remember in reading that, and she said, when you're in a classroom, you should be pushing students, pulling students, sitting with, learning from, interacting with students in ways that help you transgress oppression. So I agree with that. And then you start looking for techniques to do that. I agree with that. You know, people come into a learning space with their own experiences, their own knowledge, and you got to value that all the way because that's their humanity. And then you connect that. Where I find a challenge, not only in Bell Hook's work, but the work of that generation in some ways that we know, because there are many, 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 many more, everybody else more that we don't know because the social structure doesn't have a use for them. The challenge I find is, and I remember giving a talk in New York, this was maybe like 1997 or 98. And it was on, it was actually at City College. Uh, it was on the the African grounded, the African centering tradition of teaching to transcend as, as opposed to transgress. And maybe it's a distinction without a difference, but the distinction I was trying to make is, and the language fails, I mean, it is English, so I, I would assume it would fail. But 
the, the distinction I was trying to make using bell hooks as a point of departure was we have thinking traditions that are among, if not the oldest in human memory. We have retained much of what our rituals and traditions were. This is, I think, the work of Somme again, and Hapate by them guys, and Oyewanke Iwumi, I think. But where we have work to do is to not ground our learning practices, our teaching and learning practices, simply in a reaction to these social structures. Now we're using the language social structure. We got to transcend that. We have to, in the words of Jacob Carruthers, break the chain and link our ideas to these other ideas that aren't useful and listen to our ancestors without interpreters. And I think that finally, that is where we, we have the work that remains. When we say theory, when Bell Hooks said theory, she's creating theory in part in conversation with these European theories because that's what she was taught. Her generation, uh, Henry Louis Gates, some incredible work when he wrote his book, The Signifying Monkey, where he engages with Eshu. He's still going to read it through these post-structuralists. I say, are there no black theoreticians? Yeah, sure there are. I mean, you look in the uh, the uh, the early 20th century. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the 20th century BCE. Uh, here we go with that old African stuff. Yeah. Well, I saw you reach back for Immanuel Kant. I saw you reach back for Hegel. I saw you reach back for the intellectual genealogy of Europe. When I turned to Africa for a conversation, you accused us of being romantic. <laughs> really? So why can't you put that dead white man down? And some, some people's response would be, well, we don't put him down because we have every right to engage everything. My response would be, we absolutely have every right to engage with everything, beginning with your house. Do you not respect your mother and father? You know what I'm saying? So, so I guess what, what I'm raising is and thinking about it as you, as you were talking, Mike, and I was sitting here again taking notes. When you start talking about this question of curation, this question of it made me think about questions, and you talk about translation, maybe wonder in your work, in our work, as somebody's reading your work, 15 year old girl, 60 year old boy, man. As they're reading your work, and as you speak to them in a the language they understand, and introduce at the same time a perspective that has them now thinking, okay, what I am is valuable, and what I live in is not supreme at the same time, and now I feel empowered to continue to push this. How? What do you want people to to get from? Well, no, no. I ask that question later. Are you creating theory yourself? Because I think Bell Hooks, you know, she's creating theory. Are you creating a theory of reading, even as you're writing? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You, you wouldn't name it necessarily a theory of reading, but people are reading that, and there's there's something in your mind in terms of what you want them to get that's animating what you're writing. When you said, you know, I'm going to part of that. Maybe I'm, I'm going to help y'all understand to demystify this. Are you are you creating theory as you're writing, as you uh, as you speak? I think sometimes I am. I think you know when you think about the subjects that we talk about with each other, or even the governance structure talks about, and and relates to blackness. You know, sometimes it's theory. Sometimes it is. You, it's the stuff that we 
think about and talk about, but don't necessarily put in a concise summary of words. Right. right? So with like uh, here's an example, right? So if we're talking about his just a common example is black on black crime. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about black on black crime, a lot of people will say, well, no, you know, there's no such thing as black on black crime. And so, you know, I, I think about it in terms of if there is black on black crime, right? Let's say, let's say, I say, if you live in a society where white people created the laws, the criminal justice system, the, the <laughs> way you define crime, right? And this is a thing that you can't stop. How can you blame it on black people? Now, we know crime is a socioeconomic phenomenon, right? We know that, you know, the reporting is skewed towards blackness. We know that like, like robbing somebody on a street corner is robbery, but, you know, fooling them and deciding the way that land is legal. So, you know, uh, oftentimes I think about, and this is a theory I've been thinking about lately, like what, how do we define violence? Right? So if I plunge a, a knife into your chest, that is violence. But if I withhold from you the means to getting medicine, yes, to having medical care, yes, to if I uh, introduce a system that takes your fathers away disproportionately for using drugs, even though we know white people use more drugs. Yes, sir. If I, um, if I miss, if I fund your schools at $2,666 less than a white school, right? Yes, sir. How is that not a riot? How is that not violence? Right. How is not a police officer shooting a black person in his own neighborhood? Uh, bringing violence or rioting or bringing crime to that black neighborhood, but not a person stealing a purse, right? So the way we define things, right, is we we first have to start there, just like we have to do with intelligence. This is a question I wanted to ask you, and this relates to Tate and Bell Hooks, and this is kind of condenses it down to its simplest terms, but in an essence, a reflection of this is the young man who chose to go to Jackson State University. Yes. Instead of Florida State University. Yes, sir. And as a teacher, I think about you and, you know, Professor Hunter, you engage in like a level of critical thought and to teach students, right? How, like, what are you preparing them for? Are you preparing for them to engage with this social structure or are you preparing them to take all of this all of the things that the ancestor gave you all of the things that this governance structure has curated and to use it at its high at the highest ability that you can use it and you know because that's in essence the question of of the governance structure of social structure in terms of the public intellectual, in terms of Greg Tate, in terms of, of bell hooks and in terms of college football. Right. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So I want to know what, like, 
I've, I've seen, I saw you make some comments about it, but I, I wanted to know how you thought about that. Um, Man, Mike, I tell you, brother, it's difficult for me, and I'll tell you why. Um, we know tomorrow is Carl G. Wilson's birthday, and um, the Association for the Study of African American Life and History has a thing they do every the Saturday before his birthday every year. They're doing it today. In fact, um, while folks on YouTube are watching this, um, it will have been underway for several hours. When I leave here, I'm going to go over there. I'm, I'm uh, moderating one of the panels. And the reason I bring it up is because, I mean, and we've talked about Woodson extensively, as we know. We got long videos. We've got the, the Miseducation of the Negro is one of the, one of the books that we have here on narrative with a kind of introduction that we talked about. Um, but there is a children's book that I've mentioned many times and, you know, and I have, you know, full run of the journal Negro history, Negro history bulletin, all the things that Woodson was editor of most of the books that he published. In fact, I think all of them, one form or another, many of them, you know, from the uh, publisher, but I raise it in the context of what you raising in terms of what's happening at Jackson state. Um, and of course, today is the celebration bowl. Some of y'all in Atlanta, y'all be going to the game where the, the champion of the Southwestern Athletic Conference plays the uh, champion of uh, the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference, the MEAC versus the SWAC champion. Um, and that, of course, those of you in South Carolina, is your homies, Mike, the uh, South Carolina State Bulldogs are playing the Jackson State Tigers today in Atlanta. I wish I could be there, although I, you know, have mixed feelings about, I don't have mixed feelings. I detest the idea of a Mercedes-Benz Bowl that caused uh, the creeping gentrification uh, of that hill where the Atlanta University schools are. Shout out to Kasim Reed, the incoming mayor. Wait, he didn't win. Yeah, right. Yes, didn't win. Anyway, um, but I do remember going to the Georgia Dome for Tennessee State versus Florida A&M, and the Celebration Bowl has been a thing for a long time. But, you know, listening to those young brothers who play for both teams, but particularly um, um, Deion Sanders' son, who's the quarterback uh, for Jackson State, who just won the uh, Jerry Rice Award, which is given to the FCS, what we used to call when we were coming up, the uh, 1AA, the football subdivision. Uh, in other words, there is the plantation level football. And these are the, uh, these are led by the HWCUs who, um, fought the hardest to keep blacks out of their schools first by state law um, in segregation which is the which is the reason why historically black colleges and universities in the south that are public exist that was the moral land grant act as you've written about as we know um you know no hbcu public hbcu in the south no hbcu in the south discriminated against white people because they said that white people couldn't come White people couldn't go to Tennessee State. White people can go to Florida A&M or Grambling because the state law barred it. And after desegregation, after firebombs at the University of Mississippi, after governors like Wallace in the, in the door there in Alabama, the University of Alabama, after the University of Georgia, where they had to kick in the door, uh, Vernon Jordan and them boys, really uh, the, the lead lawyer, Donald Hollowell. Jordan was just at law school at the time. But of course, the great, uh, our great sister, um, Sharice Hunter, uh, Charmaine Hunter Galt writes about that. Hamilton Towns, you know, those guys, Arthurine Lucy at the University of, uh, uh, of Alabama and so forth. Even the graduate students who kicked in the doors, whether it be um, um, 
Missouri X-Rail Gaines, Lloyd Gaines, the University of Missouri, uh, Ada Sipwell, University of Oklahoma, these pioneers kicking in the doors. But when it became clear that integration was inevitable, these plantation universities figured out a way to, as they always do in this social structure, profit. And, you know, there's been a couple of books written about it, and I, I won't be able to put my hands on the most recent book on the story of how the University of Southern California, which figured out how to use black labor before these schools, some of the West schools did that. Also, the northern schools, particularly the Midwest schools, like the Big Ten, Ohio State, Michigan, and them, uh, even in the East Coast, Syracuse with Jim Brown and so forth, they figured out a way to use black labor for profit on their plan, in their plantation arrangements. But in the South, when Bear Bryant out of Texas A&M then coming, coming over to the University of Alabama figured out after the University of Southern California ran all over him uh, in the 70s with Sam Bam Cunningham, the, bro the older brother Randall Cunningham, uh, when he brought those black tailbacks into, uh, into uh, Tuscaloosa and beat them. And the apocryphal test, uh, the apocryphal statement attested to Bear Bryant was, I got to get me one of those. And now, of course, the Crimson Tide is black. It's not red. It's black. As is the as are the bulldogs of Georgia, as are the uh, orange wearing volunteers of Tennessee and the slave economic concern. Some of y'all call it the Southeastern Conference, but they comprise what they call the power conferences, the power five, you know, Clemson University, old plantation converted to a university where blacks run up and down the fields for profit and so forth and so on. But the subdivision, that's where all the HBCUs are, the FCS, the subdivision and uh, these are the ranks of the where the HBCUs are. They aren't considered power conferences because the black bodies that used to run up and down for Florida A&M and Tennessee State and Grambling and Southern and, and Texas Southern and so forth, those bodies now run up and down for the University of Texas and Alabama, for the University of Florida, for the University of South Carolina and, and, and for uh, Clemson and so forth and so on. So, but the, the person who... Oh, by the way, parenthetically, as a, well, as a footnote to that, the national, the professional ranks, ranks of professional football, which were integrated at the beginning of professional football. Y'all look up Fritz Pollard, one of the early uh, stars in black football, and then became segregated. Kind of like so-called Major League Baseball, white Major League Baseball did the same thing. Y'all look up a guy named uh, Moses Fleetwood in the 19th century. They, they ended up, they were, they initially were not segregated, then became segregated. When black players made it to professional football, whether it be the National Football League or the insurgent American Football League, AFL, in the 1960s, which became the AFC, American Football Conference, then San Diego Chargers, uh, um, uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. In fact, Urias uh, alerted us to an article that I went and got. And then we had a long conversation in office hours about the, the man they called the Lord's Prayer, Eldridge Dickey, uh, who could flow equally well with left and right hand, the best quarterback playing college athletics at the time in the mid-1960s, who was drafted by the Oakland Raiders in part, according to Dickey's family, so that Al Davis, uh, chef's kiss racist, just win, baby, whatever, could keep him away from the Kansas City Chiefs, another AFL team, insurgent league team, and Hank Stram, who wanted to make Dickey the starting quarterback, and if, he, if the Chiefs had gotten a hold of him, Eldridge Dickey would probably be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, but a story for another day. The AFL talent that came into professional football, which meant gave them the power to not only sustain their teams and eventually merge with the NFL, came out of HBCUs. So when you look at the black football players who were in the Professional Football Hall of Fame, 
So many of them came out of HBCUs because these insurgent white professional teams realized that y'all had the best talent. So whether it be Ed Tuttle Jones, whether it be Richard Dent, whether it be Claude Humphrey, who just made transition, he's having his funeral is coming up, uh, whether it be uh, James Shaq Harris, whether it be Eldridge Dickey, as I said, whether it be, uh, oh, I'm sorry, the best receiver and best running back, arguably, to ever play the game, both of whom have awards named for them, the running back, of course, Walter Sweetness Payton, Jackson State University, and the receiver, Jerry World Rice, out of Mississippi Valley State University, the quarterback who threw to him, by the way, Willie Titan, some of y'all know Coach Titan, who was probably, as far as I'm concerned, I saw Jerry Rice and Willie Titan hang 70-some points on Tennessee State at the Circle City Classic in Indianapolis, and I'm still recovering from that video game. My point is that the award named for the football subdivision teams in college football is called the Jerry Rice Award, HBCU player, and that award for the first time this week was awarded to an HBCU player who was the son of Deion Sanders because Deion Sanders' son now plays for Jackson State. That was a long way around the barn to answer, if you didn't answer the question you raised, Mike, as a, as a background for it. I think what we're seeing is a couple of things. On Carter G. Woodson's birthday weekend, we are faced again with this question, if we choose to see the question. Can we reconnect to, nurture, develop, sustain, and use not only as places to nurture and sustain ourselves, but to defend ourselves from an increasingly racist social structure and capitalist social structure that is bent on using our bodies? I mean, when I see those black football players run up and down this bowl season for these plantation universities, I look at them no differently than I look at the matrix. You are using our bodies to sustain yourself. In that metaphor, the machines are the Alabamas and the Georgias and the old misses, and the bodies being sucked on are the athletes running up and down. And I think everything has changed because of this uh, name, image, and likeness decision that it came out in the NCAA this summer. We talk about that in a second. But on this Carl G. Woodson birthday weekend, I think about what the question you raised in the context of this children's book, Carter Reads the Newspaper. I love this little book. Get this book for your children. If y'all heard me say this before, I love this book. Deborah Hopkinson and the illustrations are Don Tate. It is the story of Carter G. Woodson, but it's his story as a little boy. It's a story. You say, y'all know some of these figures. You know Woodson as a, as a man. And I've talked about this before, so I won't get into it much. You see his parents, James and Eliza. You see his father there, James Henry. Here's his mother, Anne Eliza Riddle. And as a child, Woodson used to have to take off his clothes so mama could wash him so they could go to church because he had one good shirt. He would go to school. He was taught in school by his uncle. His uncle was a Civil War veteran and his daddy could not read or write, neither could his mother. But they, after Carter learned, he would read the newspaper for his father. And Woodson eventually would read the newspaper for the men who worked in the coal mine that he worked. This is one of my favorite pictures, Woodson reading the newspaper to these men. Now I'm thinking about Bell Hooks you know, a precocious young person like Michael Harriet, a, a precocious young mind who was complimented for having intellect, who was reading books voraciously, who was taught to read very young and who writes about what that meant in a community, in a family. This ain't Gloria Steinem. This is not, you know, this is not white feminism. This is not theory. This is the grounding and it's, it's grounding institution. The first institution for us is for any human institution is the family, is the community. So she's grounded out of that. Woodson was grounded in that. And my one of my one of the most moving 
uh, illustration in this book is when Woodson followed his older brother, Robert, who had found good paying work in the coal mines in West Virginia. I mean, they were coal miners, not like cosplay coal miner Joe Manchin, who is basically a, a lackey, a, a slave of the corporate interests who's trying to destroy everything in this country. And maybe sometimes I wish him success because I think sometimes this thing got to be torn down and then we build something different. But the most moving illustration in here, and I don't know Don Tate, who grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. I think about my friend Nicole Hannah-Jones in the 1619 Project. She's from Iowa, and she talks about how, you know, this is important. You know, we got to get this to our young people. Well, Don Tate grew up in Des Moines, and he is actually a product of something that was called in Des Moines the Center for the Study and Application of Black Theology. He said, we learned a lot of this stuff when I was a child in Des Moines, Iowa. And if you look at the history of Des Moines, I got a couple of good books on the history of blacks in Iowa where we could talk about this. We've been doing it all the time. But the mo I really want to tell Brother Tate this. This illustration just breaks your heart. He followed his brother into the coal mines and Carter Woodson got a job. And here you see Don Tate illustrating one time there was a collapse in the mine. And you know, Jean-Michel Basquiat has that, uh, has that effect on me sometimes. He probably does on you too, like so many others. There are things that Basquiat created that can elicit every human emotion from you. And, but this one, here's, here's young Carter Woodson as a teenager trapped in the coal mine with this coal on his back. And you see a little tear coming out of his eye. Maybe he's going to to leap, to die in this coal mine. If Woodson had died in that coal mine, how would our lives be different? But this is what uh, she writes. This is what um, Deborah Hopkinson writes. She says, mining was grueling work for a boy not yet 17. It was dangerous. Once a piece of slate came crashing down on Carter's head, he never forgot his time in the mines. Years later, Carter said, I am a coal miner and I can take anything. Now, what does it have to do with what you raised, Michael? This is what I think it does in terms of we think of everything I was talking about in terms of the colleges and how this. On Carter Wurtson's birthday weekend, we understood that he not only survived that coal mine, he came out to go to high school. He was only he was 18 years old before he could finish high school. He finished in two years. He went to Berea College in Kentucky, the same school Bell Hooks ends up uh, going back to in Kentucky to teach at for the last uh, decade and a half of her Welcome life. to the 2021 Carnegie Woodson. Hold up, what is this? Hold up, hold on a second. Symposium. Wait a minute. I got the uh, Carter Woodson Symposium lined up. That is my friend. Wilson. Okay, I had to pause it. That's my friend uh, Lopez Matthews. Uh, I, had, I had him my eye on it. Lopez Matthews is uh, the brother who's running the, uh, the live stream. I had it up on it. So anyway, um, Woodson survives. Goes to Berea College, eventually gets a master's degree, University of Chicago, is teaching public school in the Philippines. He's actually part of this uh, colonial expansion of the United States, even though he's not part of it. He's learning to tie it to something you said earlier, Mike, um, this comparative analysis. He speaks Spanish. He speaks French. He's some interesting stories we could talk about Woodson, but we talked about him extensively other places. But he's beginning to develop a, a curated ability to compare. So Woodson is, is, is grounded in the social structure as an adult because he eventually gets a PhD from Harvard in history, only the second person of African descent to do that after W.B. Du Bois, and the first person probably, in, well, certainly in the United States, to have had parents who were enslaved who got a PhD from one of these schools. And it was Woodson who got his PhD from Harvard University. So he's very well-versed in, in the social structure, but he came out of a governance structure. He came out of these coal mines. He came out of being taught by teachers who were his blood relatives, his sister's brothers, and he came out of the responsibility of being an intellectual. 
of being a thinker. When those brothers had him in the after after they wash up at the coal mine, they over at Oliver Jones's house, a coal miner. They're like, bro, read us the newspapers. We can't read the papers, but you read us the papers. And they subscribed to all the newspapers. They even had a Black History Library. This is the late 19th century. This is the 18 late 1880s, early 1890s. And Woodson is relied upon. So when he gets to Harvard, when he goes to University of Chicago, when even when he goes to Berea. He is not coming there for his culture. He's not coming there for who I am to my people. I'm coming here to acquire skills. Let's like, your mom sent you off. Now I'm going to these public schools. Okay, you're going to acquire skills. You're not going to come for an identity. Just like Bell Hooks was not going to Stanford to get an identity. However, the challenge that Bell Hooks faced, that you faced, that I faced, that everybody post-segregation has faced, desegregation has faced, Woodson didn't face. By the time he gets finished with his work, he can only work in black institutional spaces. Just like Eldridge Dickey and them boys could only play football in the black spaces if they wanted to stay in the South. So what ends up happening is Woodson's entire intellectual thrust is poured into these black institutions that then nurture and sustain generation after generation after generation of black people who are not looking to white culture for their identity. Who are who are who aren't even vulnerable to that? So when you mention uh, an Amelia Boynton, Amelia Boynton Robinson, or Robert Boynton, their child, when he goes off to law school at Howard and it triggers what becomes Boynton, Virginia, as you've written about. When we think about this week, the news that we heard from Claudette Colvin, who you know says at 82 years old, I'm finally no longer a juvenile delinquent because her lawyer Fred Gray, coming out of those black spaces in Montgomery, finally got the record expunged of her arrest, which preceded Rosa Parks, who comes out of Tuskegee, Alabama, and black institutions coming through these spaces. What we see is Woodson pours his entire life into black spaces. And whether it be bell hooks writing about teaching to transgress, which means, you know, I'm in these hostile spaces, let me use teaching to transgress, you know, yeah, that's important because you're in these white spaces, that's extremely important. Just like uh, Jarvis Gibbons, a young brother, just written a book called Fugitive Pedagogy. He says what Woodson and those teachers were doing was fugitive pedagogy. And I'm saying to myself, no, it wasn't fugitive, brother, with all due respect to your brilliant work. It's only fugitive if you're looking from the social structure. In the governance structure, this is what we do. And it's what we've been doing since we invented letters and numbers, since we invented astronomy and architecture and mathematics, since we invented agriculture. It is what we've been doing from the beginning of human memory, bro. It is not fugitive. What's fugitive is the violence that you narrate, right? That you're talking about, the violence of how we were set upon. Now, I saw that as a backdrop. When you see Jackson State, this isn't, this isn't new. What Deion Sanders and him are doing are returning to what we were doing before desegregation interrupted our... There was a time, man, when I, I think about, again, I've talked about Joe Gillum Sr., the father of Jefferson Street, Joe Gillum Jr., the great, great quarterback, who was a great football coach at Tennessee State. My, bro, my brother-in-law, as I talked about, Randy Fuller, who played in the NFL, another one of the many NFL players who came out of HBCUs. You know, Coach Gillum used to always say, he said, man... The other schools would literally camp out in Nashville and see who the second and third string cornerback was, quarterback was. And if they got cut from the team at Tennessee State, they show up on a team at Jackson State or they show up on a team at Florida a &M. The same thing other places. They wouldn't even let Elders Dickey go back home to Houston. He was from Houston. Why? Because they were afraid that Southern was going to try to steal him. Now, 
What Dion is doing, ironically, Dion is bringing back into the black college uh, space that type of swagger that was the coin of the realm back in the day. I, I came to Tennessee State in 1983. That was the last year that Big John Merritt was the coach at Tennessee State. So when you think of D, when you see Deion Sanders, you looking at you looking at uh, Archie Gunslinger Cooley at Mississippi Valley, who was the coach of Jerry Rice and Satellite Titan. You're looking literally at uh, uh, Eddie Robinson at Grambling. You're looking at Clarence Big House Gaines and basketball out of North Carolina West Salem State. So when you see Steph Curry, you're not just looking at Steph Curry. You're looking at Dale Curry. You're not just looking at Steph Curry's father, Dale Curry. You're looking at Curry's father, who was a star out of North Carolina. And then you start talking about Earl the Pearl Monroe. You start talking about all these great HBCU talent pre-integration, which integration, I mean, cherry-picking black bodies for white profit. So what you then end up seeing is with Deion Sanders, here's the challenge. For two, for three generations, since the mid-60s, white collegiate athletics has profited off of black bodies to scale. You walk onto a campus like uh, University of Alabama, Tuscaloosa, you see all these white people with a few splinkering of blacks. Then you walk in the stadium and see all these white people, tens of thousands, 100,000, like in East Tennessee at Nayland Stadium where University of Tennessee plays and they get that damn rebel yell going, all these white bodies. Then you look on the field and you closer you get to the field, you see, okay, here go the cheerleaders. Okay, here go 30 white cheerleaders and four black girls. Okay, and, and then you look on, the, and look, on the, look on the field and you're like, well, damn, is this Tennessee State versus... Uh, uh, Gremlin? No. Why? We want your body on the field to make this prop, this profit. And so I'm saying I have to say that since the mid '60s, this has increasingly been the case. Then Deion Sanders, who didn't go to a white uh, to a black school, he went to a plantation school, Florida State, where they still racist. Their mascot is the Seminoles, and they do the tomahawk chop. Come on now. And so. Deion Sanders is like, oh, this is cool. This is a spectacle. This is a novelty act, blah, blah, blah. Then he starts whispering in the ears of some of these young black folk. And in the social structure, the murmurs begin to spread. Why? Wait, is this boy, and I mean boy, is this boy Coach Prime? Is this boy hat on sideways? Is this boy, it was all fun and games until, is this boy fomenting the slave rebellion? Because guess what? When this young brother, this young cornerback who wants to learn to be a cornerback under the, one of the greatest cornerbacks in the history of football, Deion Sanders, which is one of his motivations for going, when he steps on campus at Jackson State, in the words of Deion Sanders' son, who being interviewed by Roland Martin, actually, after he accepted the Jerry Rice Award, says, you know, it, it just hit different, as young people say. When you come on a field, and you playing, and all these black people in the stands, and then the band starts playing. Now, I was in Tennessee State's band, so I know Tennessee State is the best marching band in the country, but it's okay. I know that Jackson State people think it's the sonic boom of the South. I know Texas Southern people think it's the ocean of soul. I think I know uh, Southern thinks people think it's the human jukebox. I know the marching hundred at Florida AM, although it ain't been a hundred in years, it's more like 200. I know they say the marching hundred is the best. I already know. I know everybody. I know Howard University. I work at Howard University, so I know that they say the Showtime band is the best. So, I mean, everybody think they band is the best. When that boy stepped down that field, heard that band, saw them people, walked in the stadium getting 
getting showered with adulation from women who look like his sister and his and his niece and his auntie and his grandma, like, go ahead, boy, and, or from dudes standing out in the parking lot with a grill going with all kind of good smells, saying, come on, son, go with, when them silk shirts on, you know how them Southern Negroes dress with every color of the rainbow, with some gators on, talking about, we be in there in a minute, we be here in a minute. When you walk into a space like that, and then you think to yourself, I could go here, and get to the NFL and make all the money in the world. Or I could go to Florida State where I see all these cheerleaders and I see this whole crowd. And if I drop two passes in a row, the N-word starts raining on me like a monsoon in Florida. I could, hmm, here's the problem they have. And you see what is happening, Michael. See, this is this is one of your, this is one of your areas of, this is one of your crafts. You, you, you're a writer. So immediately the sports writers start coming in. There are two weapons they try to deploy now from the social structure. The stories start coming. How long before Deion Sanders leaves? How long before Deion Sanders leaves? Reinforcing the idea that, yeah, this, this N-word football, this football subdivision football, this 1AA football, it ain't real big-time college football. You got to come to a plantation school. Will he get a shot? Will he get a shot? That ain't really a question they're asking as much as a almost a subliminal suggestion they're saying that you cannot stay at an N-word school because we need this type of stuff at the white school. Why? Because for years after desegregation, in order to get those black guys and black women, mind you, by black women, usually it is basketball or track. I went to Tennessee State. I knew Coach Temple, Ed Temple, the Tennessee State Tiger Bells. So but also, whether it be Don Staley out of North Philly, who's now the coach at the University of South Carolina down there for women's basketball coach, whether it be the great uh, Vivian Stringer, and I heard, got her uh, memoir in, in, in the room. You see Vivian Stringer, who was at the University of Iowa for years, and then at Rutgers University. But before that, she was at Cheney University, where John Cheney was the men's coach, and she was the women's coach, and the women's team would pack them out before the men's team, and they both ended up leaving going to HWCUs. Cheney to Temple, Stringer to Iowa, then to Rutgers. My point is that on the for years on those football staffs at these plantation schools, you have a black man as the recruiter. This is the guy, so when they call you the N-word or they jam you up or something, you go find coach so-and-so. He ain't the head coach. He ain't the Nick Saban making more money than God in Alabama where Negroes can't even get good health care, but the football coach makes enough money to buy everybody a car in the damn state of Alabama. But the assistant coach for recruiting or running, the black coach, this is the one who tells them, look here, man, I know this is 2021, but you better not be caught dead when them white girls in the wrong fraternity house or sorority house on a Saturday night. So in other words, they got some. But if Deion Sanders absconds to Jackson State, Eddie George absconds to Tennessee State, Hugh Jackson absconds to uh, Grambling, Reggie Theus absconds to HBCU at Bethune, whether uh, Kenny Anderson goes coach basketball at Fisk. Now, why am I saying this instead of just the women and men who are excellent coaches at these schools already? Because we live in a society where celebrity drives everything. Deion Sanders is not a bet, better X and O coach than the coaches who were in these colleges, these HBCUs. But he is a name. He is everywhere. And so the first strategy of the two, as I said, in the social structure, the first strategy is let's uh, let's start rolling these stories. That when is he going to leave? When is he going to leave? When is he going to leave? Because the hope is, OK, well, maybe one day he'll be the coach of Florida State or maybe one day he'll be the coach in Nebraska. And then he can start taking these Negroes who made four men a slave rebellion, these 18, 19 year old boys. Maybe they'll come back and follow him. The other story they raise. And this is where I'm like, wow, really? Y'all going to do this? 
the other story they raise is either he's leaving or this is an outlier. This is an anomaly. The other story is, yeah, it's just him because quite frankly, these schools don't have the infrastructure. They don't have what they're basically saying is that these are N-word schools. And by N-word schools, I mean, they don't have the weight rooms. They don't have the spiels. And of course, Sanders is is, is knocking all that out the park because his friends are down there, even racists like Brett Favre and them giving money. Then here, here come old boy up and down. What's his name? Uh, the quarterback used to be for the Colts and the Broncos went to University of Tennessee. His nephew is a uh, uh, top-rated quarterback now, Peyton Manning. You know what I'm saying? People know Peyton Manning in University of Tennessee, but y'all better remember T. Martin won a national championship. Peyton Manning won a national. Wait, did Peyton Manning win a national championship at Tennessee? Check the records. I don't think so. But the point is this. The black quarterback did. And before that, there was Tony Robinson was a black quarterback at Tennessee. But I don't get too deep into this because the question you're asking about, you know, what this portends, I think, speaks to the fault line. And this is what makes it very difficult. For Woodson's generation, if you were black and achieved at a high level in your field, you plowed that intellect and that craft back into black institutions, the black press, the black church, the black schools, the black community. After desegregation, the cherry picking began. And in many ways, Gloria Jean Watkins, who we know as Bell Hooks, along with Cornel West, along with uh, Michael Eric Dyson, along with uh, Henry Louis Gates, them, are in that first generation to be cherry picked into these spaces. Once they enter those spaces, they are fighting for their lives. And part of fighting for their lives causes them to generate theory of resistance. It is the origins of critical race theory. Go ask Kimberly Crenshaw when she was at the University of Madison, Wisconsin as a hasty fellow and was taught by one of the white boys that got kicked out of the Ivy League. Mark Trubeck got kicked out of the Ivy League. David Abel got kicked out of the Ivy League. Uh, Stoughton Lynn got kicked out of the Ivy League. I'm talking about Harvard and Yale ends up at University of Wisconsin. And one of his students is Kimberly Crenshaw, who uses all that intellect to generate this theory of intersectionality. And all of it is resistance theory. Whereas if you go back before desegregation, they're not creating resistance theory. They are grounded in their communities, creating theoretical models, teaching and learning models to enhance their communities. And people then will now go back and say, but they were only doing that because they didn't have a choice. Yeah, that is the social structure context, but out, what they're building out of is a deep tradition that transcends, does not transgress, it is not fugitive, it transcends the context in which they were born because it is a cultural grounding that come with, that came with them on the boats. I'm talking about the ways of knowing, the meaning making, the way they think about movement and memory. Post-desegregation, our young people have been curated to think that Stanford is better than Howard, that running up and down the field for Florida State is better than Jackson State. Any sign that they will begin to remember that that is not the case must be met first with dismissal. Oh, it's a spectacle. Then wait, he wait, he back, wait, he's going to Jackson State? Okay, we got to move this Negro. He's the problem. And so now this is why we're on the clock now. Because I think now we are at a critical moment. Coca-Cola recognizes there's a possibility of a shift because they sent private planes to Jackson, Mississippi and to, to Columbia, South Carolina and flew the football teams of Jackson State and South Carolina State to Atlanta for a bowl that has been in existence now for years that you used to be able to up and buy a ticket at halftime to come in when people weren't going. But now it's sold out. Why? Coca-Cola, the money people know where this is going. Now, can we control this slave rebellion? 
Even the threat of a slave rebellion in the wake of the death of George Floyd led the NFL to break itself. Jerry Jones was on his damn knees. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So either you got to hurry up and hire Deion Sanders somewhere else, which means part of the current point is going to rely on this brother. Are you going to stay? And if you leave next year, you're going to take that boy with you? And what we have to do now, since we have the attention of the world, meaning the black world for a minute in terms of African people in this country increasingly. While we have the attention of young people who have been born into a social structure that will tell them that the height of your meaning in life is to get recognized by the society, to get an award from them, to get a job from them. While we have their attention for a split second in a social structure that has declared that while you can run up and down the field for the University of Georgia, if your name is Amar Aubrey and you run up and down the street, we will kill you in a social structure where these young people are like, well, hell, if it's all equal, F that, because they have lost, because they never acquired it from us, the sentiment to whether, even if it's not all material equal, you still pick home first, like you and I learned. They didn't get that. They are like, well, y'all sacrificed so that we could have the best of everything. No, we sacrificed so that we could win. And winning does not mean you leaving as an individual. Your individual success means nothing to us. In fact, it can be used against us. I mean, so I'm sure Bell Hooks had many sleepless nights thinking about how are these people are using me. I just gave a talk. They all laughing. And unlike Dave Chappelle, I can't just walk away because I need this check. So you know what? I'm just going to leave New York, go to Kentucky for for the last part of my life and teach in peace with these working class black people and white people and these poor people and try to build community. Again, something I'm not sure can be done in this racial society. And I'm sure she didn't think it could be done completely because otherwise she wouldn't have come out in her candid consistent honest way continuing to the end of her life to be a critic of oppressive systems no matter where she found them but these young people now thinking well hell if it's equal i can go play i can go play for bethune cookman i will go and play for north carolina agricultural and technical college I will go play for Morgan State University. I'm from Baltimore. They want me to play at University of Maryland. No, I'm going to go play for, 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 for Morgan State. If that tipping point occurs, then all the laughing is going to drop off and they're going to come at us with everything they have. <laughs> it ain't going to so, be funny no more. So I'll stop with that. <laughs> so, so two things, right? Yes, so, sir. Yes, sir. you know, I think you know this, but I, I think I've said this before, but you know, you know, my background is not in writing. It is in yeah. it's in uh, economics, macroeconomics. Yes, that's right. That's right. Oh, let me so, say, I keep up, but let me say, if y'all haven't read Mike, the way that you take that you take quantitative data and weave it into narrative, that that comes through so clearly. I want to not only compliment you, but I want to thank you. And those of you who are on the quantitative side of things, if you got children, y'all read Michael Harriet's writing. That's how you use data. I just wanted to go. Go ahead, bro. Go ahead. So, so I used to teach a class uh, called race as an economic construct yes right? so you know and it relates to this first of all this whole conversation when you think about like you said earlier and the think about the parallels of of bell hooks and mary church terrell when you talk about and carter g woodson right so you talk about somebody who mary church terrell she comes out of tennessee yes and goes to oberlin yes yes and she takes hers back her, she was. You talk about somebody whose parents was a slave and got a PhD. You're talking about just like Carter G. Woodson. You're talking about Mary Church Terrell. That's right. right. That's right. And she takes her as back 
to the governance structure, though. That's right. That's right. And the other thing I want to say is when I used to teach this class at a race as an economic construct, it's a question I used to ask my students. First of all, like, um, I don't think we have to convince or convince them that it's not better because um, if you run the numbers, four-star athletes who attend HBCUs have a better chance to go to the NFL than attending the biggest colleges. Come on, brother. Come on. Yes, so, <laughs> if, so, you know, you have to think about a whole, you know, the, the NFL is a billion-dollar industry. That's they right. ain't going to miss no talent. They ain't gonna miss it, brother. That's they ain't right. gonna miss it. No matter where you go, that's, that's why right. Jerry Rice was in the NFL. They that's why that's why you know all of the all these play. So they're not gonna miss a talent. But statistically, if you are a three, four star, a five-star athlete and you attend the HBCU, you're more likely to get to the NFL than uh, uh and it makes sense. When you think about it, right? So if you are at University of Alabama and, you know, full disclosure, I went to Auburn, one of those of plantation oh, schools. Right? <laughs> so if you yeah. are a linebacker at Auburn. Yes. And you're a three, four-star athlete, you just a three, four-star athlete with a bunch among a bunch of other three, four-star athletes at Auburn, right? Yeah. And if you are three, four-star athletes at Tennessee State or Jackson State. Yes. If three of them are there, y'all, first of all, you're going to have one of the best linebacker cores in the country. That's right. In, or in your league. That's right. And people are going to start paying attention to that. That's right. And what those people going to see is, regardless of where you go to school, how big is he? How fast does he run? That's right. That's right. What kind of athleticism do they? They quantify all of these things. They're not picking people who to for the NFL because they went to Alabama. They're picking <laughs> them for the skills. Come on, brother. Yes, right? sir. Yes, sir. So, so you know, you look at um, who was the first uh, pick in the NFL draft last year. Um, I don't know, but yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, the, the second quarterback taken. He ain't won no Heisman. He what? He did, probably didn't go to a successful school. Right. Right. You look at we we used to think of the Alabama players at all, but you look at um some of these players who are playing in in professional football now. Look at who they call the goat, Tom Brady. Yes, sir. He didn't even start nope. in college. Nope. But the NFL was not going to miss him because they have quantified what they want. Right? That's right. That's right. Right. So if you have that talent, it does not matter where you go because they are going to find you. A billion dollar industry does not miss a, a factor that can make them uh, into a, a better industry. That's going to can find them. They're not going to miss the best player of a generation, a generational right. talent. And here's the other thing, right? This is a question I used to ask my students. Is that theft? Right. Mm. So when we talk about these public HBCUs, right? Yes, sir. Talk about, um, you know, I use the example all the time, South Carolina State is, you know, Celebration Bowl. Yes. So you look at South Carolina State. Um, South Carolina State um, was created, it was a land-grant college. Um, when South Carolina State was created, 
and I don't know if people know this, until the 1940s, South Carolina was a majority black state from its inception until the 1940s. Break it down, brother. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, so, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> so when South, the reason South Carolina was state was created was after the Civil War. They gave these money to these land grant colleges and the, the southern states who had already put segregation into law that they forbid black students and white school students from teaching the school. So they said, well, if we're going to use this money to build a white college, now we, by law, we have to build these, these black colleges. So that's how a lot of these HBCUs began. But when you think about it, right, so from the end of the Civil War until these land-grant colleges were built, hmm. all of the black people in South Carolina, who were more, there were more of them than the white people, their tax dollars Yes. Oh. We're funding a state funded education system that black students didn't have access to. I remember you writing about that. Literally so that, paying yeah. for their schools. Yes, sir. Right. Yes, sir. So yes. is that so now like extend that, right? So let's mm. take it to the day. Mm. When you talk about Auburn, mm-hmm. right? You know, I um again I attended Auburn and I was a member of a uh, uh, all black alumni association, right? Like, so a, a bunch of black alumni um, said, you know, we want to, you know, to form this group. They formed this group and it was separate from the institutional structure. <laughs> and the institutional structure saw how much money they raised and were giving away scholarships. They said, we want to bring you in and make you your own chapter. In other words, you have your own black chapter. And I said, don't do it. Don't do it. Tell them, Mike, don't do it. And they did it. Damn. And, but what happened is they kept coming to us and say, how can we recruit these black students to, in a, to Auburn? You know, it's a school in Alabama is 27% black. And this biggest state institution, which is Auburn, is 4% black. Is that theft? Right? Mm. Right? Because all of these black people, 27% of the black people are funding this institution that only 4% of their kids can get into. Mm. Right. So now you would say that, well, you know, they might not, must not do as well in school. Well, you funding who's funding, who's creating this unequal system That's right. that teaches these kids. Right. That's right. So, but you got to think about this, right? This is what I was trying to explain to those, those white people when they were coming at us like this. That's right. When you think why these kids aren't, why aren't these kids coming to Auburn, which is the highest rated school in the state, you're factoring in all these other white schools. You're forgetting about Alabama State. You're forgetting about Tuskegee right there. <laughs> That's right. Right down the street. Right. That's right. <laughs> right. So if these kids can get into Auburn and these kids can get into Tuskegee, you're not looking at Auburn ain't going to never be for people whose parents and grandparents can't lived in Alabama. Auburn will never reach the statue of Tuskegee. You ain't, it's, it's impossible. You think that because you're in this social structure. That's right. Right. That's powerful. But you're stuck in the social structure. But the people like, you know, when I, moved to Alabama. It was the first time in my life I really regularly encountered people who had 
parents and grandparents and great grandparents who were college graduates. Mm. Right? Mm. They're not sending their kids to uh, to these white colleges. Right? right? Like, you know, when I was in college, when my best friends, uh, he married the daughter of the president of Miles College and, you know, HBCU and, 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 and Birmingham. Yeah. yeah. With a law school. People don't know Miles College has a law school. Yeah. That's right. right. <laughs> but he sent his daughter to Spelman. She wasn't going to know <laughs> Alabama, no Auburn. Come on, brother. Right. Yes, so sir. when you're stuck in that governance, I mean, that social structure way of thinking, you can't figure, you literally can't figure out the problem. Right. So this guy who went to Jackson State, people are thinking that it is a coup when the truth is he statistically has a better chance at success by attending an HBCU. It is not magic. Dion didn't have to Come tell on, him. Like, Come on. he didn't have to convince him or, or fool him or, you know, pay him some millions of dollars in name, image, and likeness or slide some money under the table. He had to tell him the facts. Damn. Damn. If Bro. you play well <laughs> at, at Jackson State, you have a better chance of going to the NFL than you do at Florida State. And if you don't, and you're a black student who graduates from Jackson State, you have a better chance at success than if you go to Florida State. You just the made insane it. choice is to choose Florida State. That's the insane choice. Woo! That was brilliant, man. Right? So... No, that was... And that's data. That's not, you know, right. this is not an opinion, right? Right. Right. And then you look at what it manifests. Well, I, I see these people who got grandparents and grand. Somehow these people got four, five generations of college graduates that went to HBCUs. I don't, I if I think real hard, I could probably think of some third, fourth, fifth generation people who went, got grandchildren who went to white colleges but because they would have to the first generation would have had to been in the 60s yeah so and then probably you gotta, yeah <laughs> I mean, and then maybe, maybe. they have to have yeah. some kind of allegiance right to this white institution that's right that they know extracted and what no black people did right mm. so but the question is is that theft like the question i have i mean because I have this larger question when we have this conversation about reparations. I have a theory that the wealth stolen from black people post-slavery might be more than the, the value of the labor and wealth stolen during slavery. First of all, yeah. we gotta, it's more black people. Right? A lot more. That's a lot right. more black people. And a bigger country. No question about it. And no question, you're talking about the taxes, you're talking about that's right, the GI Bill, you're talking about all of those schools that they could now attend and that they couldn't attend. So, all of the, the school funding, so you take a percentage of the black population and whatever percentage that the white population had to fund their schools, and that should be ours, right? Yes. But then you got to, you got to also answer this question, right? Like, 
there is no argument about this side of the equation, about the post-slavery side of the equation. Mm-hmm. Slavery was constitutional. It was despicable. <laughs> it was it was reprehensible, but it was constitutional. You can't make a legal argument nope. for reparations for slavery because it was constitutional, right? It was by it was allowed by the rules. Right. But the post-slavery, the reparations argument really necessarily lies in, first of all, after slavery, all of these people, all of the descendants of these people who were enslaved, right, they still existed after slavery, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then you got to think about the Maroons, right? You got to think about the free Blacks during slavery who still didn't have equal access to the economy, to the education, right? Like, and not just in the South, in the North too, right? Because that's where Jim Crow started. So it is a fascinating question to ponder, is the post-reparations, which is a more legally solid argument, if you could make one, Mm -hmm. is the value of that theft larger than slavery? I think it might be. Because if you say... I think it almost certainly would be. Right. Because first of all, you got to start... You can only get it from 1776 when the country was actually a country until 1865 if you're talking about slavery, even if you got reparations for slavery. (laughs) That's the first thing teaching in law school, sue solvent parties. There's nothing to sue. Right. 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 That's right. That's right. Right. Unless you want to go after it. Well, again, no, but that's just an intellectual exercise. You have to... Practical matter, you're absolutely right. So you're, you're talking about less than a hundred years. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. That is like that is like a bomb, man. When you really think that whole field of violence, technically, as the United States, is less than a century. Damn. But think about how they maintained it, and and the remnants of it for oh, no so question. long. No question right? about it. No question. No question. Yeah, I think it would be interesting if you think about it in terms of the way you even just now, just by you naming a couple of categories in terms of taxation. You know, the question would be who would have standing, but you've you've already started answering that question because first thing I try to do is bog us down in the details. I mean, that's what Catherine Frankie and them arguing in her book Repair. She would say that prior to 1865, you could make the argument that during that period of the Civil War the promises that were made that were reduced to print in places like South Carolina, Mississippi could be used as a basis. But even then you couldn't necessarily extend it to a class. It would be a moral argument. It wouldn't be a legal argument. You're absolutely right. But you've already begun to solve the problem. I can hear some lawyers now saying, well, who would have standing? No, well, you here, here's how you determine who's at, who has standing, right? Yes, sir. If you compare the average wealth of a black person who was enslaved for the same number of generations as so make it generational, right? So if you're a white, take the average number, the average white person whose family goes back to 1800, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And compare that to the average wealth of a black person who's been in America since 1800, yes. right? So the data, if you did that, would if you extrapolate that data, it would show that oh, just by the like. Wealth, you can almost determine wealth, not just by how hard they work, how much they, just by the time that they've been in America. It is such a, if, if it's, it's a capitalist system, right? There's a wealth building machine. So the longer you are in that system, a capitalist system that is a wealth building machine, 
necessarily if you have equal access to the law and the, to the, the economy, your wealth would increase generationally. So hmm. by doing that, you would almost prove that every black person who whose generational uh, history goes back to slavery has standing. So now what would you do with the arguably majority of white people in this country whose people come as a result of the post-Civil War immigrations? The Italians, the Germans, the Irish. I mean, well, Irish come back before, but I mean, who Frankie's argument would be that they too benefited from that because there's, there's in other words, she would almost give a, a legal standing for whiteness. So even if you got off the boat in the 1920s, you benefited because of race. I mean- No, not just because of race. You got that money that we were spending. You got the money, of, you got the black money. Who do you think I mean, you saying. You're giving it to the black people who were already here? Yes, sir. Like they had a surplus and then they handed it out. That's what the Homestead Act was. No that's question what, about it. That's what the New Deal was. They were no taking question. that yeah, black bill, money that's and right. just handing it out. That's so right. if you were a first generation immigrant in 1938, you had access to the New Deal. But the argument, the legal argument is that was that black money that they were storing up in the storehouses. Oh, for interesting. And, and and you have the added like Cats Nelson and them right. You have the added benefit of they still excluding the black people from access even to that. So right. you get them coming and going. Damn. Oh, you say okay. So the capitalists. Okay. 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 See. Oh, so that's that's why you <laughs> you make the generational argument. We don't even make. Let's let's not even do slavery. You took. You compare. Uh, first, a, a second generation Jamaican immigrant. Yes. A third generation to yes. to a white dude. Yes. A third generation white person. You're probably going to get the same disparity, right? But so if you attach mm. reparations generationally, you see standing, right? Interesting. You see standing. I think there's a case to be made. Yeah, I think there's a legal strategy. I mean, of course, then it comes up to what the judges are going to say, and we see then that when when the extra legal stuff starts. Does impact. That's a fascinating thing. So let me ask you this because I know we, we were up against the clock now. I'm, I'm almost yeah. over to the A. I want to ask you that right, in terms of as we continue to think through this, and to me, this is really the legacy that we've been given is to think like this, is to have this conversation. And again, you know, Professor Hunter, we I mean, this space is where we can have these conversations and think through them and then build as we're doing this, and it is both ends. Some folks are saying in the chat it's both ends. Where do you, how do you view what's going on? I mean, given what you just laid out, which is taking out culture, taking out just as a matter of cold capitalist dollars and cents, it makes more sense to go to HBCU. How do you see this thing playing out that we're seeing emerging in Mississippi? I think in, in this specific instance, so I think I had a, before this even happened, I had a dream like not an actual dream, but mm -hmm. a thought that what would turn the tide, and this would definitely turn the tide because you know one person in football don't really change football, but one person in basketball can. Oh yeah. So oh, there's yeah. two guys who are best friends whose sons are basketball stars, LeBron James and Dwayne Wade. That's right. If they chose an HBCU, first of all, again we know we've just looked at the data. They don't suffer a 
um, their, their chances to play in the NBA does not suffer. No question. But they changed the landscape of basketball, period, because two stars, like two people, two great stars on a basketball team could go against any team. Right. That's right. right. That's right. right. And, and they're, they're going to fill arena. That's right. They can run right. the NC two A table. That's right. right. Like, no they, like they could, and <laughs> and right. like they get. So if Dion builds, let's say he builds a stellar program, mm-hmm. they can still blackball him by not scheduling Jackson State and all right. of that. He he will succeed, and his players will succeed. That's right. But LeBron James, them at a uh, son at an HPCU. They still got to get to that tournament. They still get to go to that That's tournament. Right. That's right. That's right. They still get to show the, just two of us can run through these white schools. That's right. That's right. And so right. I think the next step is like the game changer would be basketball. And it doesn't have to be those two. Those two or like I don't see and that's this testament to the the strength of this white supremacist system. Mm. Is that they can they have managed to keep that from happening all these times, right? That's right. It's come close. I mean, the kid maker at Howard got hurt and then COVID. But you're right, it's in this kid Mikey Williams out of California. I mean, it could happen. You're right, and you're right, that could flip quickly, right? I mean, especially these one and done kids, right? And And I'm I'm wondering if you think it makes a difference where because again, at Howard, you know. I went, you know, we both went to school in the South. Mm. HBCUs are HBCUs, but at the same time, Southern public HBCUs, I think that makes a difference. I don't, I mean, to me, I don't know what yeah, you yeah, think. Yeah, like my thought is like North Carolina Central. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, one of the big, <laughs> like that's a big boy. But first of all, is is as big, got the resources, then the, as much resources as the big white boys. Like there's literally no argument to be made about that right it's a bigger school it's, it's a bigger school that's a good point like right like you can't make an argument that's a good point i don't know if you saw uh the uh, uh, jr smith man you see he got 4.0 this semester he was yeah. there talking about how he worked i mean to me man that's like you it, it's it may change a thing right. you know what I'm saying? he actually worked i mean jr smith said man i never had to do this before he was so happy man and see and see they in that back of north carolina's Central, oh yeah, to back the basketball, no question. No question. Quarter where, where Duke and Ooh. UNC they play each other. They play each other on the streets and they play each other in in public. Krzyzewski would lose his mind, man. Can you imagine them boys leaving, not going? See, Krzyzewski about to Krzyzewski about to leave. That's the only way North Carolina is going to maintain their grip. You see what happened in North University of North Carolina, right? So that's the yeah. only way. Oh yeah, that that state. Keeps his grip because ain't nobody. There's not going to be another Sashevsky. Just like there no. was no, right. No. That's right. Right, and that state loves basketball. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And again, there is no argument to be made against those the two biggest, two of the biggest HBCUs right there in North Carolina. <laughs> well, look, man. Look, I, I wish yeah, we yeah. could keep going. It's tipping. It to, I, I, I got to run because I got to go over to the Woodson thing. But I do want to say, do want to say two things. Number one, which is, you know, shout out to Doctor uh, Amon Sunyata Amon. I'm rocking they they sweat today. Decolonize your tongue. But what we talking about today? That's the first thing. So I'm rocking the you know Calabash, you know Maroons medicine chest. Decolonize <laughs> your tongue. But what we've been talking about today with our brother 
uh, Michael Harriet and, and, and Urias, we talking about not only decolonizing our minds. Shout out to Bill Hooks and all the you know ancestors made Maldoma Somme, Greg Tate. We also now you talking about decolonizing our our the institutions, decolonizing everything. And I just man, this I don't know about you, Urias. I am man. I'm sworn. I gotta get my mind. Actually, I'm just gonna take this right into the asylum meeting. So, Mike, man, I, man, this was brilliant, brother. We gotta, we gotta do this again soon. Man. Definitely, man. I'm so happy. I'm again. I'm so just happy I, that I was the surprise and I was just here to give a brick. No, when it was needed. You yeah, you built, you built more than the brick. You brought more the brick today, bro. I'm telling you, I, I will read this chat. Keep it over, you raise because these, man. Absolutely. And, and, and also real quick, just dropped a, a, a case study for folks in uh, the Nubia locker room. That's the sports arena talking about uh, Morgan State University and the 10 Bears, which is a lacrosse team. 10 19, Bears. 1975. Where they That's beat right. That's Rangers. right. National That's champion, wasn't it? Exactly. And the NCAA is horrified. They got a long memory. And I'm sure the 10 Bears is on their mind with, with what uh, you guys are talking about. Oh, no question. Drop that for folks to look at. It's just a quick eight minute video. And oh, if, yeah. if I find it, I wrote something about Fleetwood Walker. And, oh, did uh, you? Yeah, so if I find I'm going to drop it in. in Please, in will you, man? Oh, yeah, Moses Fleetwood Walker, man. You him. Immigrationist. That bro was more than a ball player. <laughs> I was like, no question. Man, let me run. Hey, look. Hey, Mike, Mike, we got to do this again soon, right? Yeah. And, uh, so, Karen, we sending you all the love. We'll see you in a minute. Uh, Urias, thank you, Baba, as always, the architect. <laughs> Much respect to you both. Peace to you. Love you all. all. Right. Peace. <laughs> Wow.